The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. Good. Oh. Good morning. Next time, I'm just going to start singing. I think that would draw people's attention. So, good morning again. So good to be with you guys here this morning. And I'm excited to study uh, God's words uh, with you guys this morning. And so we will be in Joshua chapter 2. And... uh, going to read the intro that uh, we will start every sermon with. Here we enter the middle of a story. God had called his people out of slavery and into freedom. They have left, but they have not yet arrived. The journey has been difficult. Many have been lost along the way. Now they stand on the threshold. The promise is before them. What will it take to enter the promise? Last week, Daniel preached from Joshua chapter 1. And, you know, he talked about God commissioning Joshua, right? And so Moses is dead and God calls Joshua and says, you are the next man. And God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. I will be with you. I need you to lead my people, but be strong and courageous. And then in Joshua chapter 1, verse 10, after God commissions Joshua, Joshua commissions the people, right? After God told him to be strong and courageous, he's decided, all right, let's go, let's do this. And then in chapter 10, he tells the people, get ready, because in three days, we're about to cross the river Jordan, right? And that's where we'll be uh, continuing this morning in Joshua chapter 2. Before we start, let's pray. Jesus, I pray that your spirit will be among us. I pray that uh, the words that I speak will not be mine, but yours. And I just pray that you will fill this place with your presence. Give us heart to listen and also to practice what we hear. Thank you for this, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Joshua chapter 2. I read. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed here. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes. The men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. 
At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spouse, uh, pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the forts of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the man assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window. For the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hill so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourself there three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the man had said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers, and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord had surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. This is like a wonderful bedtime story. Except, don't fall asleep, please. So, Okay, so let's look at the text. <clears throat> Verse 1. Joshua secretly sends two spies. Right? And so why would Joshua send out the spies? Was this necessary? If he was really trusting in the Lord, after all, had not God told him that the promised land will be given to them? That he will be successful? 
right? So why didn't Joshua just go ahead knowing that God was with him? After all, the battle was God's. God was going to fight the battle for them. So why did Joshua have to send the two spies? The answer is, Joshua had the example of the leadership of Moses for this action. An action which was the result of God's own command, right? In Numbers chapter 13, this is what God told Moses. The Lord said to Moses, send some of the men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites from each ancestral tribe. Send one of its leaders, right? Moses did the same thing. And Joshua is using Moses' uh, sample of leadership. So by application, Joshua was living and acting on the precept of Scripture, just as he was commanded. Remember in Joshua chapter 1, verse 7 to 8, This book of the Lord shall not depart from you. Follow everything my servant Moses has taught you. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be successful. And so we see Joshua doing that right away by sending out the spies. Also, while Joshua had the promise of God's deliverance, he had not been given the promise on how God will defeat, sorry, the instruction on just how God will defeat the enemies they will face. And so as a wise military leader, he was simply gathering information concerning the layout of the enemies and the morale of the people of Jericho. You see, Joshua was to trust God completely, but in that trust, he was also to use the resources that God had given him. Right? A wise leader does that. Yes, God was with him, but he still had to play his own part. And the first thing he decided to do was to send the spies. But also in verse 1, it tells us that Joshua secretly sent the spies. So why the secrecy? Right? And so the reference to secrecy had to do with the people of Israel. He did not inform them that he was sending the spies. Why did he do that? In Numbers chapter 13, right? when, when Moses sent the spies and they went and scouted the land, you know, they came back with news. You know, they're like, this land has milk and honey and it's awesome, but they got giants. And we look like flies in front of them. So we don't want to go in there, right? And when the people heard this news, they were greatly discouraged. And so Joshua learned the mistake from what happened from the previous generation. And he didn't want that to repeat itself again. And that's why he sent the spies secretly. And then when the spies come to Jericho, they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab. See, Rahab is mentioned eight times in scriptures, and in all of the six passages, her name is found with a specific descriptive noun. It is a prostitute. It's funny because this has created many problems for many theologians and Christian scholars. And so to remove this stigma because her name is listed among the ancestors of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, it has been argued that she was not a prostitute, but an innkeeper. Because you see, it's Jesus. Nobody in Jesus' lineage can be a prostitute. Like Jesus can take care of himself. 
Like, we're going to do it for you. But the problem with that is innkeeper and prostitute were synonymous terms in that culture. So, oops, they should have studied a little bit more and then realized their fault, but they didn't. And so the spies come into Jericho and they go into Rahab's house. Why did they do that? Because Rahab's house was the only place where the men could stay with any hope of being unnoticed and where they'll be able to gather all the information that they were seeking. Also, her house afforded an easy escape, right? Because she lived right on the city wall. And then in verse 2, the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land, right? Oops, didn't work. Because this verse indicates that the whole city had been on alert. And the spies were recognized. Immediately they came into the town and they were seen when they went into Rahab's house. So in verse 3, the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the land. You see, in ancient times, prostitutes were often involved in intelligence activities. The king expected Rahab to do her patriotic duty and turn the spies in or face the consequence, which was death. Because the ancient law code of Hammurabi, which was uh, the first law code that included laws that dealt with everyone in the Mesopotamian society, contains the following provision. If felons are banded together in a prostitute or innkeeper's house, and she has not hailed them to the palace, she shall be put to death. And so what does Rahab do? Verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes. The men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flask. Right? And then in verse 7, the men set out in pursuit to go find the man. Right? And so the consequence is death, and she knew that. Right? But in these verses, Rahab conceals the spies, lies to protect them, and then sends the soldiers on a wild goose chase. Because to do otherwise was an act of treason and punishable by death. The king believed her because they didn't even bother searching the house. Like, we'll take your word for it. So why did she lie to her own people to protect the enemy? Before we answer that question, let me raise another question. Is it possible to condone Rahab's action? Is it possible to condone Rahab's action? Because scripture is very clear that we are to obey authority and people who rule over us. Rahab certainly did not do that. She lied and deceived them. So what can we learn from Rahab's lie if there is a lesson to learn from it? Christians should certainly obey the authorities 
of those who rule over us. We are supposed to be the most law-abiding citizens in the land, but when the laws of the state conflict with God-revealed will, then the Christian has no choice but to obey God's law. In other words, it is okay to lie in cases where people forfeit their right to know the truth. Here's a question. If you are living in Nazi Germany as a Christian, and some Jews running for their lives, and they came to your house, and you hit them, and the SS soldiers come to your house and say, we know you're hiding some Jews. Bring them out. Would you tell them the truth? knowing what they will do to those Jews in your house? No, you will lie. And it is okay to do so because the SS soldiers have forfeit, forfeit their right to know the truth. right? And so there are certain circumstances where it is okay to lie. And this is kind of what is happening here. She lies. But she also had her reason of lying. So why did she like to protect the spies? The answer is in verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know what the Lord, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Right? She gives an insight into the thinking of the people. The word is out that a great company of people are coming to take the land. The people are disturbed, they're afraid. This is the report she gives to spies, and that is why she lied to protect them. But that is not all of it, because in verse 10, she said, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorite east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. Notice what she said. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. How long ago was this? This happened 40 years before they arrived at the Jordan River. And during those 40 years, God had been giving the people of Canaan an opportunity to repent from their evil ways. How do we know that? In Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, God had said to Abraham that his seed will be strangers in a foreign land for 400 years. How long were the Israelites in slavery in Egypt? 400 years. Then in the fourth generation, they will come again because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, God was going to give the people of Canaan 420 years to decide whether or not they want to repent from their evil ways. Okay, real talk. I remember in Old Testament, the first thing the professor did was he had a cube and he wrote stuff in the cube and he put it in the middle of the class and he said, from the angle you sit in, who is God to you? On one side, God is wicked, God is evil, God is good, and God is loving, right? And why did he do that? Because the information that we have about God, 
usually reveals what we believe about him, right? And so the skeptics declare that the God of the Old Testament was a big bully, that he was cruel and barbaric. This is what Richard Dawkins had to say about God in his book, The God Delusion. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. Wow. And then it just goes on. This is a man who doesn't like the God of the Old Testament, but he's also the God of the New Testament. They're all the same, but oops. Right? And so when people say that about God, I'm like, when God gave the people of Canaan 420 years, in my opinion, that is plenty of time to repent. But also, God extended the time by 40 more years and saw to it that they heard about what he did in Egypt because news travel fast. So my question for the Christian, I mean for the skeptic, is how much time should God have given them? Because when judgment falls, I'm sure there will be people who will say he should have given us more time. More time? It's been thousands of years, my friends. And God is patient. He is slow to anger. He, he, he is merciful. He has been giving the world many opportunities to turn to Christ. So I say repent before it is too late. Because God has, is continuing to give us all the many chances that we need to turn from our wicked ways. But then Rahab went on to say in verse 11, When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. See, not only did they hear this, but they knew it was true because their heart melted. Even so, they did not return to God. There are people today who know about Jesus. They know that Jesus died for their sins, was buried and rose again. But they're not saved. What saves you? It is only trusting in Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. For God says, at just the right time I heard you. On the day of salvation I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not the next few seconds. Today is the day of salvation. And then to continue with the passage, verse 12. How does Rahab respond? Now then, she says, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to me and my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. So how is Rahab responding? Obviously different from the people of Jericho. 
from these verses, first, we see Rahab's confidence and conviction in the fact of the Lord's power. Somehow, since she knew what had occurred at the Red Sea and afterward, she knew that it was the product of a sovereign God, a God like no other, and she was willing to put her faith in that God. Secondly, we see Rahab's confidence and conviction in Israel's God as the one and only true God who rules over heaven and the affairs of men on earth. Her statement in verse 11, For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and earth. It is more than a statement that Israel's God was God. The idea is that he alone is the true God who is involved in the affairs of everything that happens here on earth. And then the third thing we learn in that passage is we see Rahab's confidence and conviction of coming judgment on her people and her desire to be delivered through aligning herself with the God of Israel. Verse 13, note the now therefore. This indicates that this request was the product of her knowledge and her faith concerning the Lord. She trusted God right there. And then lastly, we see in verse 12 to 13 that she was not only concerned about herself, but she was concerned about her family and her entire household. See, this is God's desire that none should perish, but all to have eternal life. And we see Rahab believing in that. And then to continue with the passage, in verse 14, they told her, our lives for your lives, the man assured her. But if you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. 15, so she let them down by a rope and, you know, they left the city. Right? And so from verse 14 all the way through verse 21, what happened was just before the spies left, they confirmed the agreement with Rahab. First, her house must be identified by a scarlet cord hung from the window. Second, she and her family were to remain in the house during the attack of the city. And then third, the spies reassured her that they will be free of their oaths, guaranteeing her protection if Rahab exposed their mission. You know, this reminded me of the deliverance story in the Passover because what happened was in the last plague God brought on Pharaoh and on, on Egypt when God killed the firstborn in every household. He spared the Israelite because of the blood of the Passover lamb that had been sprinkled on the two doorposts and the lentil of their houses. And this is what's happening with Rahab, the scarlet cord was like the blood that the Israelites sprinkled on their doorposts so that the angel of death passed over them. Because like in the days of Noah, there was safety and refuge for those who entered the ark. And remember during the flood, Noah also preached for 120 years. And the people laughed and mocked at him, and none of them entered the ark. But those who entered the ark were safe, and the rest perished. 
And in Egypt, there was safety and refuge for those who were gathered behind the doors that was sprinkled with the blood of the Passover lamb. And then for you and me, there is safety and refuge from eternal judgment. But only if we enter the right door, Jesus Christ alone. In John chapter 10, verse 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. You want to be saved? It has to be through Jesus. There's no other way. And then in verse 22, when they left, they went into the hills and stayed here for three days until the pursuer had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back and went down on the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. You see, the spies' report is entirely different from the spies who went 40 years ago. Right? This news is encouraging. And for a leader, right? Like this is what you want to hear. You know, God told Joshua, be strong and courageous. I'll be with you. But I'm sure Joshua was dying for a sign. How will you be with me? And this is the sign that he needed. This was the encouragement. It's like the people are melting in fear. Jericho is now yours. Joshua and the men of Israel saw the words and action of Rahab as a clear evidence that the sovereign providence and blessing of the Lord was theirs. Note their confidence. Surely the Lord has given you all the lands. And so is there anyone here who is taking over some kind of leadership, thinking of Daniel as I was reading this passage? I pray that the Lord will give you the sign to know that he is with you in your new position as the director of Coffee Oasis, if he hasn't. That he will show you multiple signs that he is with you, just as he had shown Joshua, that he is with him. By revealing that Jericho is now theirs because the people are trembling with fear. And so what do we learn from these passages? The first lesson is, this demonstrates God's concern and work to deliver one person or one family who will trust him. It reminds us that God knows the heart of man and will lead us to them only if we are available. When they went to Jericho, they went to Rahab's house. That was a divine intervention. And then God saved one person and he saved her entire household. God is still doing that today with us. He takes us to those people who are ready to hear about him just as Rahab did. The second lesson we learn is it demonstrates how God's mercy and grace overcomes his wrath through the cross. See, Rahab was an Amorite, and according to the law of Moses, there was to be no pity or covenant with any inhabitants, only judgment. That was according to the law of Moses. Have nothing to do with them. Kill them, because these people are evil. But through her faith, 
she became an exception. Right? God is a God of mercy and grace. And if we are willing to repent, God is willing to look away all of our trespasses and forgive us. And then the third lesson we learn is that Rahab forms a type and a pledge of God's purpose to save the Gentiles who, though without hope in the world, will come to know God and be partakers with Israel through faith. It is God's desire that none should perish, but for all to have eternal life. Jesus died for all. That's what God wants. And then lastly, Rahab provides a lesson by noting the contrast with Israel and the inhabitants of Jericho. See, it becomes a warning against the hardening of the heart in those who see and hear but fail to respond by faith. Just hearing is not enough. You have to believe. The people of Jericho heard it all. I mean, Egypt was the greatest empire during that time, and God challenged the God of Egypt, and he destroyed them. And the people heard the news, and they trembled, but not one of them repented. Only Rahab did. So my friends, just hearing doesn't do it. Hearing alone doesn't save you. Believing in it does. And I pray that we will believe God's words. And if there's anyone here this morning who's like, man, I just don't understand the God of the Old Testament. Why does he do stuff like that? My friend, God is merciful. He has given us time. He is continuing to give us time. And like 1 Corinthians says, today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. And don't wait until it is too late. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for being a merciful and gracious Father. Thank you for just the many chances that you continue to give us, even when we harden our heart and we walk away from you. You keep pursuing us. You keep drawing us close to you, Lord. Thank you for that. And I just want to pray for anyone here who is a skeptic, doubt. Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would soften their heart, just reveal that they need you, Lord, and I pray that they will take the bold step in putting their faith and trust in you because you alone save and nothing else can save. Thank you for this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.